0: You don't get to choose your life's defining moments. Somebody said that once. I don't know who, maybe Spider-Man or Tanya Harding. Doesn't matter. What matters is that it's true. And if I could have had some say in one of my life's defining moments, I probably would have chosen one with less nudity. Of course, I was just in the sixth grade. I mean, how could I have known that an innocent game of truth or dare one Saturday evening would be so consequential? Uh, My sister and I, see, we were with some friends, home alone while our parents were all out at a party, and somehow it came to pass that I was dared to go outside and moon the next car that drove by our house. Now, I was not then, nor am I today, a regular mooner. In fact, this was going to be my first. I was actually a pretty well-behaved kid. I went to church. I followed rules. I liked to please those in authority. But every once in a while, when intoxicated by the freedom of a parentless house and impaired by the effects of unregulated Dr. Pepper consumption, even the best-behaved little boy can be corrupted, at least for long enough to stick his butt out in front of a car. And so. I took the dare. I stepped out into the evening air and walked to the edge of my yard. And when I reached the street, I turned around, unsnapped my bugle boy jean shorts, pulling them to my knees where I also rested my hands and assumed standard mooning position. I was feeling pretty good about it all until I saw the headlights turn onto my road. I realized then that as a mooning novice, I wasn't sure how the transaction was supposed to work. What do I do? Do I wave? Do I shake a little? <laughs> and and what's the driver supposed to do? I assumed the answer was just keep driving, maybe laugh a little at the innocent childhood playfulness laid bare before him, and reminisce nostalgically on his own adventures as a youthful scamp. But that's not what this driver did. Nope, he stopped. Parked his car right in the middle of our street. And despite my ignorance to the etiquette of this ritual, I knew that that wasn't right. So I turned around and I saw my pastor. His head of well-coiffed hair was stretching from his Buick like a turtle from its shell, and he asked, not with the disappointment or the anger of a preacher, but the sincere confusion of a concussion victim, Paul Burgess? Are you mooning me? It's all a blur from there. I remember screaming. I remember running inside. Maybe shorts up, maybe shorts down. I don't know. But whatever evil spirit had possessed me was gone, and I was once again the rule-following 12-year-old who couldn't believe what he had done. And so, I did what good kids do after they moon somebody. I called my mom at the party. I, I fessed up. And part of my punishment was to call the preacher and apologize, which I did. And the next day at church, She goes up to him, and she does the same on my behalf. And he says to her, oh, it's okay. We all thought it was funny. We all, my mom asks. Yeah, it turns out that preachers can be social on Saturday nights, too. And mine was actually coming back from a movie with his wife and uh, my youth minister, and my youth minister's husband, who at the time just happened to also be my mother's boss. I killed four birds with one moon. And what's really funny about that story is that today, in addition to being an in-recovery mooner, I'm also a pastor myself. My name is Paul Burgess, and this is the Naked Preacher Podcast. You know, odd as it may seem, that night does represent a sort of life-defining moment for me. Obviously, it says something about God's sense of humor. I mean, the chances that that car packed with those people would pass by my bare butt years before I felt called to ministry myself are so infinitesimally small that it couldn't have happened without a little divine nudging. but also metaphorically. It represents something to me that I'm learning as a pastor today. Namely, people don't like being seen. We don't like to lay ourselves bare and be vulnerable in front of others. If we do, we feel the need to apologize, to run back inside where it's safe and we can be protected from shame. We've been doing it since the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit, they realize they're naked, and what do they do? They hide. They sew fig leaves together as clothes because, the text says, they felt shame at their nakedness. But if we, through Christ, are on a path toward reconciliation, a journey back to our ideal selves, shouldn't openness and honesty and nakedness be a part of that? Maybe so. And maybe pastors are the ones who are called to stick a little bit of their own bare selves out into the road to lead the way. One pastor who's doing that is Reverend Dr. Amy Butler, the senior minister of the Riverside Church in New York City. Amy is the first woman to pastor that historic congregation, And while I don't think she's ever mooned anyone, it didn't come up in conversation anyway, vulnerability is integral to her philosophy of ministry. So for this, the first episode of the Naked Preacher podcast, I invited Amy to come on and talk about pastoral vulnerability, what it is, what it isn't, and why it's important for congregations today. Well, I am so excited to have as our guest today, a pastor who has not shied away from the topic of vulnerability. She preaches vulnerably, she writes vulnerably, she leads vulnerably, and uh, there are a whole lot of people who have heard her and read her and been led by her who uh, I think are better because of her willingness to do that. She is the pastor of the historic Riverside Church in New York City, where uh, she's been since 2014. Um, I could keep saying awesome things about her, but her words are way better than mine. So I'll just hush and introduce Reverend Dr. Amy Butler. Amy, thanks for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me. This is fun.
0: Yeah, this is fun. Um, So, you know, I I know a little bit about you, run across you in a couple circles and things, uh, but but. For those who might not, let's ask that obligatory background question, you know, sort of like the pastoral interview question, you know, what led you into church ministry?
1: (laughs) Well, I grew up in a very conservative evangelical home, so I never really saw women in leadership. (laughs) Uh, But I did love Jesus. I was president of the youth group and um, spent most of my lunch times at school, like, in Bible study, it was so dorky, <laughs> but I, um, I, I just really loved the church and and always have. And when I went to college, I just assumed I'm going to you know marry a pastor because that's how I saw women participating sure. in the life of the church, which is so anti to what my parents taught me about you know girls can be whatever. But mm-hmm. um, so I just felt this this pull that was like undeniable. And it happened for me in seminary when, I mean, in um, college at Baylor, when I started studying systematics and thinking about that, perhaps maybe the way that I had understood the church and the world was uh, a bit limited. And I also, I always like to say, like I was in a class with all men and I was like, seriously, this is the best you got. <laughs> you know, I, I just felt like I could, I could, could do it. And yeah. I, wanted to do it. And I always tell people like, you shouldn't do this work unless you can't not. Right. It's so mm. hard.
0: Yeah, you're right. It's
1: so hard. So that's kind of my, my call to ministry. I'm still kind of, you know, on the outside of my family, theologically, they, mm-hmm. they love me, but they're just like, I don't know what you got to do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, um, I think it's awesome that, I, I mean, how could vulnerability not be a part of your story if if so much of it involves following that call that, that you know and you feel right there in your heart, even if, you know, voices on the outside, it, it might rub up, up against those. Um, I, I like the way that you put it. You can't not do it. And um, if you can't not do something, then that means... Uh, standing vulnerably in in places that say um, no, you can't do it. So, as I sort of mentioned, whenever I run across your name, the topic of vulnerability isn't far behind. Uh, you you've written on it. You've taught uh, a seminary class or two on it. Um, I heard you at a conference speaking about it and uh, you've also spoken live and in person with Brene Brown about it, who is the LeBron James of this topic. Uh, So that makes me a little jealous, but obviously it's something that's important to you. Um, But you know, words have different meanings for different people, for folks uh, listening, they might hear vulnerability and think one thing. So um, what, what exactly does vulnerability mean to you? When you talk about it, what are you talking about?
1: Mm. Yeah. Meeting Brene Brown, that was like, I was so fangirling it. (laughs) It was really exciting to meet her. Um, for me, vulnerability has to do with being authentic, being who you really are, like the same person in the pulpit that you are Hmm. outside the pulpit. And, um, for me, it's it's not a matter of strategy, it's a matter of survival, because I cannot live into a pastoral persona that's hoisted upon me, that includes being perfect, or hmm. being witty all the time, or not being tired, or I, I just, I can't. And, hmm. you know, I really learned that after um, my divorce in 2009, because hmm. that was an experience that just took me by surprise and I was like on the floor, like I couldn't function and my wow. church saved my life. And it, it turned out to be so much easier to be a real person with like real feelings and real problems uh, than it was to be fake.
0: Wow. So you, you got to uh, receive, spiritual care and, and love while, while giving it, you got to experience the church while you were leading the church. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. that not that rare? Yeah,
0: <laughs> it is. I mean,
1: we had been through years and years of conflict at Calvary and I just pretty much lost my faith. Hmm. And um, the way that that community cared for me and my family after um, that trauma was just, I mean, it sort of helped me believe in God again.
0: Wow. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, So I read a piece that you wrote for Baptist News Global in which you claim uh, that you were convinced that a vulnerable style of leadership, I'm quoting you here, uh, where the leader is authentic and collaborative has to be the way of the future for the church. And that reminded me of another quote I ran across and all this schooling and reading I've been doing uh, where the author wrote, I am convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to stand in this world with nothing to offer, but his or her own vulnerable self. You know who said that? Mm -mm. Henry Nouwen. Ah! Oh Pretty good God. company. Yeah. What? Right. Way you go. good <laughs> so good thinking. Um, I, I think you're both right on. So, why do you believe that vulnerable leadership, um, authenticity, as you uh, describe it, is essential for the church's vitality?
1: Well, we're in this moment in the institutional church in America. You and I are living it as leaders, where you know nobody has to really go to church anymore. It's not socially obligatory. Uh, you can be a totally nice person and not go to church. Mm-hmm. And you know, like 50 years ago, people went out of obligation. Churches were booming, et cetera. Um, people don't have time for anything that smacks of inauthenticity mm-hmm. or um, um, or a standard that excludes people or doesn't acknowledge the very real problems of living in mm. in our community in these days and a- day and age. We're we're so busy. Like, yeah. why would we go to church on Sunday morning if we're not really engaging in conversations that impact our lives?
0: Yeah, if we're not getting something real. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I want to be careful here because I hate consumer Christianity. So I'm not about like. Let's do things so everyone will come to church, coffee bar, yeah, and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking about like life is hard.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Life is hard, and we have a holy text that speaks to the difficulty of our living. So if we cannot talk about it, then we are wasting our time. Mm.
0: Preach, preacher. Um, so speaking of that holy text, uh, what uh, do you see as a biblical case for vulnerability? Where Where do you think we see it in scripture? <laughs>
1: This is such a great question. I mean, the obvious answer to me is the Psalms. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just David pouring out his heart and, you know, being really, really honest with God about who he is. But, I mean, look throughout the entire text. There's a whole bunch of, like, losers that (laughs) end up, like, screwing things up, you know? Abram and Isaac and all of them. Um, David. And even in the New Testament, you know, Peter, you know, there's, there's something about where God meets us that requires us to be who we were created to be. Mm. And there's this beautiful moment, I think, in in a spiritual experience when we can finally understand that God loves us for exactly who we are.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: And I preach that and I say it and I struggle with it myself, you know. Mm.
0: Yeah, I've I agree completely. I've um, I find myself captured by the idea of of masks and and layers and and clothing and and all all of this, you know, to be vulnerable, um, you know, so connected to to shame, right? Uh, Brene Brown right. talks about that, and you go back to the Garden of Eden, and they clothe themselves because what they felt ashamed, and um, and. I myself, as I've gone through this, have, have found it to be so interesting um, about Jesus, you know, who did not come with the robes of a king or the armor of a warrior. He came, you know, as just like well, one of us. I mean, you, the crucifixion, he's, he's up there literally naked, arms wide open in front of the world. Um, I mean, you talk about vulnerability and there... You know, we confuse vulnerability for weakness. You you can't find a stronger person in the Bible, in this world, a stronger example than than Christ on the cross. But isn't
1: that the exact opposite of what our our culture tells us? Yes. Vulnerability is weakness, and weakness makes you a target. Mm -hmm. And it's easy for us to believe that because churches can be brutal places. Hmm. People are mean. And um, to offer ourselves in a vulnerable way— is a, is a bit risky.
0: Yeah, amen. Um, speaking of Brene Brown, have you uh, read "Braving the Wilderness" yet? Yes. It's, there's a part in there where she talks about sitting in in some, I think, an Episcopal retreat center somewhere in Texas, and um, and she's looking at all the pictures of the different um, bishops or whoever had 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 been in charge of that diocese or whatever and she was commenting on their layers and layers and layers of robes and then how beneath them is a statue of what she says naked jesus you know on the cross and just that juxtaposition of of how um the expectation of of us as as pastors to um to have this robed perfection um, but standing right in front of us is, is Christ on the cross. And yeah, you're, you're right. It is pretty opposite. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I find, um, I find that, um, being vulnerable is a way of connecting with your people, uh, in, in a very deep and authentic sort of connection. I remember when I first came to Riverside, I did this, um, week long interview, right? So when I was a candidate, I came and, They introduced me in worship and, like, stood up and waved my hand like Miss America, Mm -hmm, you know. mm -hmm. It's just totally different, you know, from my (laughs) 250-member Calvary Baptist Church. And um, after worship that day, they invited me to fellowship hour, which turned out to be two hours of open mic and me on a stage with the spotlight. And people were asking me questions, and you could tell that they were asking questions to try to get at different information. like. Tell me a time that you needed God in your life. And I'm like, I know they're asking about my divorce, <laughs> right. right? So I can remember this moment when I said, as many of you know, I've been divorced and divorce has really touched all of our lives. It's like the whole room starts crying. Mm. like Everybody starts crying. Yes. And, you know, it's just a curse to me that we spend so much time trying to show up all shiny and put together.
0: Absolutely. It's not what it's like to be human. A- absolutely, when when a pastor can um, give people permission to be human by showing that you know they themselves are human. I, I know that feeling exactly. It's like a pressure valve is released in the room, and and there's just a, a, a beautiful, sweet lightness. Uh, like the Spirit of God is 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 there, and it's it's awesome. So, um, yeah, okay. Well, that that sort of is, is an answer to my next question though. You might, you might have others, um, interested to know where, uh, some of the areas are that you have dared greatly and, and risked vulnerability in ministry. It sounds like that's a, you know, that's an example right there. I mean, gosh, sitting in front of, uh, all those people for two hours and answering questions.
1: <laughs> I'd love to take credit for my Riverside journey, but it's, it's so surreal that it doesn't, it sort of defies explanation. And if I had known the ways in which I would be asked to be vulnerable, I don't know that I would have done Hmm. that. So um, ways that I'm, I try very hard to be vulnerable is like if, if I hear a report that someone said something about me or uh, sending around emails, I would just go ahead and approach them directly. Mm -hmm. Just, You know, because I think that kind of honesty and vulnerability breaks down a lot of barriers. Yes. Um, I have told a lot of my own stories in uh, sermons, which is always like a two-edged sword, right? Because you never want to get to the point where everybody's like, oh, my (laughs) gosh. And then, you know, there's something about Riverside Church, and I think it's the same at other churches, where people have this investment in the pastor, like they feel like they know you. And uh, you may have read a few weeks ago, I collapsed after worship at I the back read of that. the door.
2: No. I
1: had i done the benediction, I walked to the back of the door and apparently I fainted. And so like the ambulance had to come and there was like it was just crazy. And just dealing with the just dealing with the aftermath of that is still continuing. Like yeah. people feeling so scared, hmm. feeling so sad, my my need to their need for me to comfort them, their shock at the fact that I'm human. <laughs> you know, um, it's been a really, and that that is a kind of vulnerability that I did not seek out.
0: Right, right.
1: And it made me wonder with my spiritual director this week, whether or not I'm constructing my vulnerability in a way that I have control over it, huh. rather than being truly authentic.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I wrestle with that too. Cause if you're trying to control the vulnerability and structure it and do it your way, how truly vulnerable is that? Hmm. Um, now there's a story that I read, um, recently that you, uh, you had contributed an article, I believe to USA Today, um, that demonstrates some vulnerability, uh, I believe and a type of (laughs) vulnerability and authenticity that, that we need right now, particularly, um, you know, in today's times where where folks can be so divided. And, um, it's about, uh, a guy named Todd, uh, that you, um, learned about, uh, and, and sort of used his example in a sermon, uh, where you talked about loving our enemies. And, uh, Todd has some views that are, um, different from the views that you have, particularly when it comes to guns and, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to take your story here. So, uh, why don't you uh, share it with us? How'd you get to know Todd, and and what happened there?
1: No, no, I um, I actually had read a story in New York Magazine about um, a program called Narrative Four that brings people from opposing points of view to talk to each other and tell each other's stories. And um, I read about Todd and his partner, who was a woman whose daughter had died of gun violence, and. The story was about how they forged a relationship and they didn't really change each other's minds, but there is something about that relationship. And I I felt like that was so honest about what it's really like to be human, you Mm -hmm. know, love your enemies. Like, what does that even mean? It doesn't mean like, oh, I think you're so whatever, you know? I mean, it's hard and it's, it's messy and wrangly. And, um, so yeah, Todd reached out to me and I was like, I do not want to talk to this guy because he like everything that I don't like. And then, (laughs) and then I felt convicted by my own bias and I ended up talking to Todd on the phone. And, um, despite my best efforts, I actually really like him. He's a really nice guy and yeah. he's really passionate about what he believes. I think he's completely wrong.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that frustrates me, but I just don't think we find our way back to each other without being in authentic relationship. And particularly in this moment in our country, mm-hmm. you can't even have Thanksgiving dinner without a big fight, you yeah. know? And yeah we're just we're just not going to uh deepen the tapestry of our community if we're absolutely unwilling to be real with each other,
0: yeah, I mean Paul says ours is the ministry of reconciliation, right, and you know we seem pretty divided in in a lot of ways, and uh for that reconciliation to happen, we have to be we have to be authentic and and own and be and stand proudly in who we are i think uh but but also here others who are standing and in, in, in being proud in who they are. And uh, I, I just think that story was such an awesome example of how to do, because that is a vulnerable thing. You know, it is easy to say this is who I am and I'm not going to listen to anybody who's not this way, but we don't get very far along the road. Re- the, the road to reconciliation that way.
1: I had this moment with Todd that was so stunning to me. Like, okay, he's a Republican. He li- lives in Kansas or Indiana. He's this big, huge, white dude who owns a ton of guns. Uh-huh. He, um so traditional. And I just listened to him talk and listened to him talk about how um, when Jesus said— <laughs> something about a sword that Jesus actually meant gun. and I'm just like, uh-huh. I just completely disagree with him.
2: Uh-huh. And so
1: finally I was like, well, Todd, just like in one sentence, could you just like sum up what, what, how you would explain your faith? And he said, love God, love each other. And I was stunned mm. because that's what I would say.
0: Mm. <sighs> <laughs> and you're like, darn it, Todd, why'd you have to say I that? Know. <laughs> uh that's that's awesome that
1: i mean we have more in common than we think we do i mean among ourselves Mm -hmm. we're all carrying pain we all have doubts and fears and Mm -hmm. um when we spend so much time building a facade that protects us from the reality of other people we're not doing ourselves any favors
0: amen amen okay so we have learned that uh, rigidly invulnerable mil, uh, ministers, uh, you know, they they come off as inauthentic, and and they can probably hold their congregations back by not being real people in front of them, like like we've said. But I'm wondering, can the pendulum swing too far the other way? Uh, can ministers be overly vulnerable? What do you think?
1: Oh, for sure. <laughs> like for sure. I mean. First of all, you know what they taught you in, in preaching class? Don't ever tell a story where you're the hero.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's just common sense. Right. And you know, there are there are some things that are just personal and are not appropriate for the the, um, the the public space of the pulpit. And actually it's more of an art than a science, so you have to know your people, you have to know yourself. And interestingly enough, this is what I wrote my doctoral dissertation on. 10 years ago, before I even knew I was coming to Riverside. um, Like, how do you build a persona, a pastoral persona that helps you lead your people? Hmm. No matter what you or I do, people are going to assign to us some kind of identity. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: we have some control over that. And so choose the stories you share carefully, uh, be thoughtful about them. And um, anything that you share that makes people squirm, not okay.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I had a pastor once who uh, we used to come to church, and I I felt like I was a psychiatrist. You know, just sitting there <laughs> hearing him talk about all these issues, and that's inappropriate.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. You got to know the the boundaries and uh, what do they they talk about using? Um, not not your wounds, but your scars. Is that is that how it yeah, goes? Yeah, that's
1: but, what Nadia Bolz-Weber says. Like, yes, from your. Preach from your scars, not your wounds. You don't want to be bleeding right. all over people.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Preach from things that are, that are healed, experiences that you've had that are past, and the scars from that, but not things that, yeah, you don't want to bleed over folks. Okay. So let's say that there's a pastor listening to this, and she or he is so inspired by our conversation, because obviously she or he will be, um, that uh, they say, okay. I'm going to dare greatly. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be vulnerable this Sunday. But where in the world do I start? (laughs) What advice would you have for that pastor?
1: Hmm. Well, you should always start with the text. Always start with the text. Like the pulpit is not your personal bully pulpit to get up and tell stories of when you were a kid or whatever.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Just, I think like starting with the text gives us some integrity to what, to what we're saying. And then like, what are the themes that emerge from the text that are universal themes that you know other people are struggling with? You know, it's very powerful to say. Sometimes I'm, I doubt, or mm-hmm. I really struggle with fear, and here's a story of when that tripped me up. As long as you stay within the um, within the confines of the text, and you're just not up there speaking to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's powerful. I would also you know choose a couple of people in your congregation who know you well, know your preaching style and just share with them that you're wanting to move in this direction. Um, I did for my first seven years of preaching regularly I had a friend read my sermons before Sunday hmm. and she would often say this is inappropriate or you're being too self-deprecating here or whatever and in a way she me had preach um, more than I learned in seminary yeah. so like you know if you're unsure run it by a couple people yeah. and, and see what their response is
0: yeah that's that's funny you mentioned that I um I, I always read mine to my wife and um, whenever I get you know I do a, a good bit of the self-deprecating stuff and um, whenever I get you know, a little too much that way. She, she gets a look on her face and she gets upset at me because I'm sort of picking on her husband and she doesn't like that. So, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a good gauge. Um, well, I, uh, I do so appreciate you being here. And, and like I said, this is our inaugural episode of, uh, the, uh, naked preacher podcast. And so as part of that, uh, you know, since we're pastors, we got to have an invitation. Uh, but since this is vulnerability, we'll, we'll have a skin invitation, And uh, that involves three quick final questions um, that I'll ask to every guest uh, that invite them into deeper vulnerability. So don't have to elaborate if you don't want to, uh, but uh, certainly welcome it. Question number one, what is one mistake that you have made in ministry?
1: Oh, I have so many to choose from. <laughs> you may have heard this story. This is one of my favorites. I um, I inherited a twelve million dollar uh, construction project, downtown development project, when I went to Calvary, and
0: I was haven't we all? Build. Haven't we all?
1: <laughs> Didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and um, you know, there was so much downtown development going on at that time in Washington D.C., and churches were sort of being. Are, were low-hanging fruit for developers. And
2: yeah.
1: so um, there was a, an AP reporter who wanted to interview me and another pastor about um, downtown development in churches. And during the interview, I turned to her and I said, I mean, we're pastors. We don't know what the hell we're doing. And the next day on the front page of the <laughs> Washington Post, Reverend Butler says, "We don't know what the hell we're doing, <laughs> and like I apologized to the congregation for ten freaking years about that i oh. uh, I could ne- there was one member of the congregation who just never forgave me, and um yeah, so that was a notable mistake
0: yeah. oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing. I actually had, had not read that story, so I'm I'm grateful to have heard it. Um question two, what is one of your fears in ministry?
1: Oh geez, now you're gonna make me cry. Um <laughs> I I have a fear about this work destroying me in terms of my health. Hmm. Um but the bigger fear that I'm grappling with right now is this moment that we're in. Like, what if I don't use my platform effectively enough? What if I don't do everything that I can do to speak out against injustice? What if I, what if I squander the platform and that's just constantly on my mind and it just seems more urgent now than ever before.
0: Hmm. Yeah. You won't, you don't want to get to um, retirement and, and uh, think I could have done more there. Did I use that moment for everything that it, uh, every opportunity that it presented?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, um, okay. So a more fun question, but still requires some vulnerability. What is one thing that you completely rock in ministry?
1: <laughs> completely? <laughs> Um, well, well, I messed up a lot. You, you're but... doing something
0: right, Amy, because you're you're at a pretty good church. You got a pretty good group of folks <laughs> around you, so there's something in there that Did you do. completely rock.
1: Okay, one thing that I think that I do well that I've I've gotten better at is hiring. Mm-hmm. I after many many mistakes, but I over the course of my career, I just have this like passion for finding like the next amazing superstars and doing what I can to nurture them. And I feel like I have a team of colleagues now that is just astounding. I have always hired with the idea that, you know, I want people who are smarter than me around me because it makes me look good. So, <laughs> right. um, but I, I think I've gotten pretty good at it. And awesome. um, so that's been something I, re- I really have enjoyed.
0: Yeah. Well, I can uh, affirm that you, the conference where I heard you speak, actually a, a lot of your staff from Riverside was there and they were just terrific folks. I remember them remember them still. So um, you get to work with some great, great people. Uh, well, Reverend Dr. Amy Butler, I thank you so much for taking time to sit down and talk with me and talk about vulnerability and being vulnerable in doing so. Um, and uh, I'm just so grateful to to kick this podcast off with uh, a, a pastor who, um, now because I'm sort of still new at my church and, and I don't I want to learn from your mistakes, I'll say she knows what the heck she is doing, uh, in my opinion.
1: <laughs> Thank you,
0: Paul. You honor. got it. You got it. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Well, there you go. Hope you enjoyed the heck out of that conversation. And before I let you go, I need to tell you. I remembered who said that thing about defining moments. It wasn't Tanya Harding, oddly enough. Actually, it was Brené Brown, whose name you heard a lot in my conversation with Amy. In Braving the Wilderness, she says, "'Rarely do you have the gift of knowing "'you're inside a moment that will be a part "'of what defines you.'" For me, apparently mooning the pastor was such a moment. Whatever yours are, I pray that you can be bold enough to own them and vulnerable enough to share them because through them, God is making you who you're supposed to be. Peace be with y'all, and I'll see you next week.